Conversations are dangerous. You know the type of conversations, right? I mean, not, not the normal conversations you have with like kind of banter just for kind of transactional, hi, how you're doing. But you know when you at a conversation, you're in a conversation, you're having a, and then immediately you know, this is getting serious. Like this, this is a real conversation now, and now I have to expose something true about myself or real about myself. I kind of have to open my heart. You've been in those moments like, okay. My default mode is not to be in those conversations. My default mode is like, I'm just not to be in any conversation. But to turn it on and realize, okay, I have to expose myself. And I have to know what's really going on when it does. It's really conversations, right? Dangerous conversations are conversations that you're willing to expose yourself and it requires to give yourself in all sorts of degrees. It requires you to be vulnerable. Those conversations can absolutely be beautiful, but they are incredibly dangerous, aren't they? True conversations require sacrifice, self-giving, and love. Are you willing to be in a dangerous conversation? And not conversations that actually put your physical life in, in peril, but are you willing to be in conversations that expose yourself? that expose the other person, that expose truth, pain, fears, anxiety? Are you willing to be in that conversation? Are you willing to be in a conversation that reveals the peril that you really are in? Are you willing to be in a dangerous conversation? C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Silver Chair, out of the, uh, the uh, wardrobe uh, series, gives this analogy about dangerous conversations. It's a conversation between uh, the line Aslan and the young girl named Jill. And Jill, uh, she's in the land of Narnia, and she's thirsty. And at once she sees this magnificent stream, and there, kind of guarding it, or in the midst of it, or right in there, is the lion, Aslan. And this is what it says. This is Jill. If I run away... It will be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't move if she tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the line if she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it was boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. 
It just said it. I dare come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen the stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went straight to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. But she tasted it, but before she tasted it, it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be the whole, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. Jesus engages us in risky and dangerous conversations. He never has these just kind of how are you doing conversations. Jesus always has a conversation that goes right to the heart of the matter, that goes right to the heart of truth, right to the heart of our pain and anxieties. Jesus has dangerous conversations with us, and he has dangerous conversations for himself, too. He puts himself in danger. Conversations that put his social standing in danger. Conversations that eventually put his life in danger. Conversations that expose the real dangers of the people that he's talking to. The real peril of their predicament. Which we just heard in John 3. The wrath of God remains on all people. That's the peril that everyone on this earth is in. The wrath of God is on them if they do not believe. Are you willing to enter a dangerous conversation with God of the universe? Are you willing to have those hard and truthful, painful conversations with Jesus, the purpose of the universe? Are you willing to enter into other dangerous conversations with people? You see, that's the reason why Jesus came, was to not just be here, not just to die for us, but to enter into conversations with us, dangerous conversations, to enter into real conversations, to model for you and I what it means to be his followers is to enter into those real conversations with each other. Let's look at one of these dangerous conversations that he models for us in John chapter 4. One through four. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself had not baptized but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now we know in the last chapter, right, it was John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, who were becoming envious of Jesus' disciples because they were both baptizing. And yet somehow the transition in the crowd were flocking to Jesus more than John. I mean, John had a huge following. And then Jesus shows up, and then suddenly everyone is flocking to Jesus. And so John's disciples were, were upset by that, and Jesus goes after that a little bit. And we already know that Jesus had drawn the attention of the Pharisees, of the religious rulers of the Jews. They were in the Temple Mount, right? He really got, or in the temple, he really got their attention, right? When he, he came in and flipped over the money tables. 
He got their attention like, what is this guy doing in the temple? He upsets them. He draws their attention. And now, John the Baptist had the attention of the Pharisees because of his large crowds. Now the crowds were shifting to Jesus. The Pharisees are putting their attention to Jesus. We know that because Nicodemus just had a conversation, was sent by the Pharisees to engage him. Now it's even more of concern. And so Jesus says, let's move our ministry up north. Let's, let's leave the, the region of Jerusalem and let's go back up his hometown area in Galilee. The only problem with that is that the way through Judea to Galilee was this area called Samaria, or where all the Samaritans were. And so almost ordinarily, all the Jews traveling back and forth would go to the Jordan River on that valley and avoid Samaria and go north. You didn't have to go through the mountains, but also the main reason is the Samaritans were, and the Jewish people were hostile and violent to each other. Samaritans were not just violent to each other, but they, they were remnants of the northern kingdom. Remember the two kingdoms split at the Old Testament, the northern and the southern kingdom. The Samaritans are the remnants of the northern kingdom. But beyond that, they were what, 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 what Jewish people considered half-breeds. Because they intermarried with pagan religions around them and the pagan Gentiles around them. So they were an amalgamation of different faiths, practices, gods. And it's been 500 years of some Samaritans and, and the rest of the Israelites drifting apart. Samaritans only held on to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. They didn't hold on to the, to the prophets or the other writings. So it was a completely different faith. They didn't take any of those with authority of God. They held on to a different history. They even created a different temple. Can you imagine that? A different temple to where God would be instead of Jerusalem. They worshiped God in a different place. And for the, Samar- for the Jewish people, the Samaritans were ceremonially unclean. And not just some of the time, all the time. They were constantly unclean because of their practices, because of what they believed and espoused. And so there was this hostility. And so people, Jewish people would avoid them completely. Because if they walked into the area, they would be unclean. Ceremonially unclean. And yet in this passage, it says, Jesus had to go. He chooses to go, to take his disciples, who would have been aghast by this, like, what are we doing? This is not the way we travel. We do not go through Samaria. And yet he takes them directly through, which is a more direct route, but it wasn't the fastest route, and it wasn't the route. It was a dangerous decision and a dangerous journey, physically and religiously and socially. And it goes on in John 4, verses 5 through 9. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is high noon, 12 o'clock. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Just understand what's going on. It's, it's high noon. They've been traveling for half a day. And they're tired, right? This is by foot. They're tired. They're hungry. They're thirsty. And as disciples of a rabbi would do, they take care of their rabbi. 
They take care of all of his needs. So they go into and try to find a town or try to find people that have food. But I want you to understand, this is a dangerous thing for them to do. They're already in a place where they're not supposed to be. They're already a place that makes them unclean. And now they have to go get food from Samaritans who are unclean and eat their unclean food and put that unclean food into their bodies. You can imagine this is this spiking up and all in there. They like, have no idea what to do, but they go and do this. And there they leave Jesus at the well of Jacob's well, which is the one common ground. Notice that they put this in the text, the one common ground between Samaritans and Jewish people. Their forefather, Jacob, who dug this well. Interestingly, he dug this well 2,000 years before the time that Jesus was there, and the well was still working. Interesting enough today, that well is still working today. 4,000 years, that well, that's a good well, by the way. You find that company, Jacob, like, can you dig us a well? That is a good well. It's still working. So they're there, he's sitting up there. And here's the thing, women would go collect the water for drinking and for washing, but they would always do it in the cool of the day. They would do it early in the morning or late in the afternoon when it was cool to do that. But here we have a Samaritan woman, no name, who goes to the well at high noon. Why does she go there at high noon? Because she knows no other woman will be there and no one else will be there. Why does she do that? Because we know somehow she's ostracized from the rest of the Samaritans. This Samaritan woman is ostracized from the rest of the Samaritan women. And we know later on because she's immoral. And everyone knows she's immoral. And so she's an outcast among outcasts for Jews. And then Jesus engages a conversation with her, which is a dangerous conversation. Why is it dangerous? She's Samaritan. She's a woman. At that time, you would not talk to another woman unless it was your wife, particularly in public. It wasn't appropriate. And a woman would never talk to you. Jesus engages this woman, a Samaritan woman, who is immoral. And he doesn't just ask, he asks her for a drink. He asks her, hey, take the vessel that you have and let me have a drink out of that. Let me put my lips to it and let me drink from your unclean vessel and drink the water that you provide for me. Jesus breaks all social barriers and she knows, he goes, why do you ask me to do this? This is not right. This is not appropriate. I know that, you know that, what we're doing is not okay. This is a dangerous situation. Just pause for a second. Who does Jesus consider equal to? Who does he consider? Who does he have said that people are equal to me? How does who does he engage in scripture? In the passage before, in the chapter before, he engages Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who's given a name in scripture. Nicodemus, who is an Israelite, a true Jew, a, a man, a, one to properly have a conversation. And not just that, a man who has moral, upright standing. He is one of the rulers of the Pharisees. He is not just any old man. He is an important man that people have a lot of respect, has a lot of integrity. And he engages him. He says, hey, we can have a conversation, Nicodemus. And then in the very next chapter... In the very same way as he engages Nicodemus, he engages an unnamed person. Not just that, a Samaritan 
a woman, an immoral person. Almost the exact opposite of Nicodemus. And Jesus says, you and I, we're equal. We can have a conversation. You're the same as me as to Nicodemus. Jesus addresses both with the same dignity in the same conversation. He addresses both because they both have the same need and the same issue in his mind. They both have sin. They both are unclean in his mind. And both of them have a problem because the wrath of God remains on them. They need to be clean. They need holiness. They need him. And so he's willing to engage them. For Jesus' mind, there is no difference. There is no difference to him. He loves them both. No, I mean, let's remember who Jesus is. Let's remember who Jesus actually is equal to. In Philippians 2, 4 through 7, it says, Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is really important. Can you look to your own interest? Yes, the answer is yes. That passage says, look to your own interest and look to the interest of the others. What's interesting about that is your real interests are actually aligned with the interest of others. Your real, true interests are aligned. And what is the real, true interest? The wrath of God remains on you. You don't want that for anyone, for yourself or for anyone else. And Jesus says, have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What, what does this have in mind? Have in mind that you all have the same issue. That you're all in the same boat. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form in God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus and the Father are equal. They are one. They, are the, they have one spirit. Eternally. They are one. And yet, as a, when he it comes in incarnate form in, in human, he doesn't say around, hey, look it. I'm equal with God. I'm better than all of you. He doesn't do that, does he? In fact, who does he identify while he's on earth with? Who does he identify with? He identifies with sinners. Not because he is a sinner, but because he loves them. Because he, he's given them his dignity from the very foundation of this earth. And he's given the same dignity to every person. Co-equals. This is what Jesus does. He identifies with the unspeakables in the society. He identifies with the outcasts. He identifies with those that are hated. And guess what he also, who also identifies with? He identifies with the rich. He identifies with the moral upright, the most affluent, because they all have the same need. And he engages in dangerous conversations with every one of them. Real conversations. And there's no one more unspeakable in Scripture in the New Testament as compared to this Samaritan woman in the eyes of everyone else. She's not even given a name. And Jesus spends time with her, a significant amount of time, in a significant conversation. He had to go to her. That's what the scripture said. He had to do it, meaning he chose to do it. He had to talk to her. 
He had to break all those social norms. He had to offer himself to her. He had to offer the gift of life to her. He had to offer grace to her. This is what he had to do because it's who he is. Who do you consider yourself equal to? Or who do you consider equal to you? Which is probably a better way of saying it. I think you and I, I know for myself, we overevaluate ourselves. I mean, I, mean, you, you, I know we want to be humble. I know we think we try to be humble. But you and I are not humble day in and day out. We, we, we say great people in our minds all the time. We have these little hierarchies we put all our time. It's just inherent in who we are. Christ, who is above all, humbles himself. We, who are below all, exalt ourselves. We, we say things like, God, thank God I'm not like them. I can't believe someone would do so-and-so. How could they do that? How could people sin like that? How can they believe such and such? How can they do those things? Like, those come out of our mind, our thoughts, and our conversations with each other. How can people be racist? How can people be corrupt? How can people be, murder people? And the thing that Jesus goes after in the gospel is, look at it. It's pretty easy because you all do it all the time in your minds. I mean, he breaks it down. It's not your outward actions. I'm looking at your heart and all of you do this all the time because we don't properly identify ourselves. We're, we, we aren't quick to understand who we are. But Jesus is quick to understand who our hearts are. He knows, right? He just said it in John 3. I know the hearts of men. You don't have to tell me your heart. I know it. I know the brokenness and the depravity in all of you. Now, the good news, this is part of the good news, is you're not as bad as you can be. You can be worse. I mean, you could do outward worse thing and have worse thoughts. Every day, it could be worse. But it's in the, in the, the ability in you to do it is right there. There's just a thin line that separates from those actions, from those thoughts, and from you even having those thoughts. The grace of God is he starts removing those thoughts, changing those thoughts. Who do you identify with? Who do you consider yourself equal to? But we want to feel better about ourselves and feel better about our brokenness. And we want to feel better than we're better than other people's. But we're not. And Jesus just is in scripture right here in two chapters and a couple verses. This identifies like a, the worst of the worst in your, in your opinion and the best of the best. They got the same issue in my mind. And they have the same dignity. And I'm going to engage them in the same way. In Jesus' mind, there's no difference between Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman. He loved them both. He loves them both. And he loves you. Who are you identifying with? Who are you not identifying with? Maybe that's the question we should ask. Who in your life are you excluding? Who in this, in this church, in this building right now, are you excluding? I don't want to be in a real conversation with them. Who in your family are excluding? If Jesus can identify with Nicodemus, 
if Jesus can identify with the Samaritan, and if Jesus can identify with you, which might be even harder than for him identifying with the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus. You, you can identify with all people, with anybody. And this is why, this is one of the main purposes why Jesus comes in human form. It's why he comes to earth is so that he can identify with us. So he can take that identity and go on the cross and kill it and give us a new identity. His identity. Who are the people in your life? Who are the people in your community? Who are the people in your family that you need to identify with? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. I and mean, you see how the same way, it's, it's, it's almost the same conversation that he has with Nicodemus. I mean, they're very, and you can understand it. Like, I understand why they're very literal, because he's talking about things that are right in front of them. And Nicodemus is like, I don't understand. Second birth, that doesn't make any sense. And she goes, what do you mean you have no water, she says. It's the same response. You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than the father Jacob? Now, we just learned, I mean, verse after verse and chapter after chapter, Jesus is saying, and John is saying in, in his gospel, Jesus is greater than everything. Jesus is greater than the Pharisees. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than all the gifts. He's the great one. And he is greater than Jacob. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of this water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a, a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Once again, she's being very literal and very practical. This seems like a good idea. I never have to come to the well again. Still not totally getting it. If you knew the gift of God, Jesus says to her, you would ask me. You would ask me for this water that I talk about. Now, Samaritans, right, I told you that they only hold Elam to the, to the first five books of the Torah or what we call the law, which is the holiness of God in those first five books, right? That's what literally the Torah means, the law. And for them, they would have understood the greatest gift of God is the law. The revelation, the revelation of who he is and how great and how holy he is. How do you think? Why he's worthy of worship. And Jesus in this moment is trying to understand, like, that's not the greatest gift. That's part of it. But the greatest gift is the law given with grace, which he's offering her right now grace, I mean the law, if you look, read the Old Testament, the law always points to God's grace. The law is not established so that you and I can actually accomplish it. It's established to show the character of who God is, his greatness and his holiness and his distinctness, his otherness compared to us. And the whole story is, and look at, this is how I'm solving this gap and this is how I'm solving your uncleanliness to make you clean, to make you worthy, to make you holy. What does Jesus offer here? What does he give? 
just here. He gives multiple things, but three things he offers here. He offers holiness. The issue of, of cleanliness, the ceremonial cleanliness, but internal cleanliness. Jesus is God, and one of the things that you, you see about Jesus, he breaks all social norms, he breaks all uh, cleanliness norms. Why is that? Because Jesus is the one who makes things pure. When he touches things that would normally make things people unclean or unpure, it doesn't make it. He is the one that creates things. And so when he enters into places, you and I can never make ourselves pure or clean or holy. No matter how, how much good we do, no matter how holy we are, no matter how much we obey, it never works. We always need some outside influence. Jesus is the one that makes things. He touches the people and they become pure and clean and healed. And so <clears throat> that's why he's not worried about a conversation with the Samaritan woman or touching her vessels because he knows he's the one that's going to make her pure and her clean. That's why he enters into that conversation. It's one of the things that the law is saying, right? The law is asking for cleanliness and Jesus is offering that holiness through his grace. He also offers eternal life, forgiveness of sin, removing of the wrath that remains on all of us, which chapter 3 said. And, it's okay, and he applies that like, you will never be thirsty again. You will be forever quenched. The gift of Jesus bans thirst forever in our lives because he is all satisfying. And then he, what does he offer? Not just eternal life, not just cleanliness, not just relationship with him, but he offers the Holy Spirit to reside in us. I mean, that's what the living water is. That's, that's the, the analogy that he's using, Holy Spirit, in which he's going to give. In John 7, 38, 39, it makes it plain. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. We just had this, this issue of baptism, water, spirit, and baptism connection of the first few chapters. And this is the promise of new and everlasting life. This is the promise of the Old Testament points to over and over again. And here in John, he's saying it is fulfilled in Jesus. This promise of grace is fulfilled. Let's just point it out a little bit in the Old Testament for you so you see it clearly, this promise of this gift of the Holy Spirit, this gift of cleanliness, this gift that's through this symbolism of water. It's actually not through the actual water touching you. Just want to make sure you understand that. Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Notice he says, I am the fountain of living waters. I am the living water and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. I mean, just think about that. God has said, I am the fountain of living water. So what have people done? They have forsaken the fountain. And instead of going to the fountain, they've gone after, not just living water, is like moving, like a stream, under, right, stream of water, like a brook. That's not gross, but like that clean water, Right, freshing water, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, not these stagnant ponds. And they said, look, you've made cisterns, stagnant water. And you tried to gather water. like, yeah, that's going to be satisfying. And the problem with those cisterns, it says they're broken. And they don't even hold any water. Two evils. You've rejected 
the right source of water and you've tried to be your own source of water. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Right, that, that symbol of cleanliness ceremonies. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from the flesh and give you a heart of the flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice what goes first. I will give you my grace, my spirit, so that you actually can obey the Torah, the law. Not I will give you the Torah so you can actually then receive grace. It's the other way around. All God needs to do is to touch us. And he makes us pure. Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Zechariah 14, 8. On, on, on that day, which is the day of the coming of the Lord, on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, out of them to the eastern sea and out of them to the western sea. It shall continue in the summer as in the winter. It's the symbolism out of the temple, uh, Zechariah is saying, is on a day of the Lord when he comes, out of the temple will flow these living waters that will refresh everyone. It's this incredible symbolism. And what do we know? Who is the temple? Jesus is the temple because he is the, with the presence of God. Because he is God. And then we have, in all that context, here we have Jesus saying in John 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty. The water that I give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That Holy Spirit, that presence of Jesus in your life continually welling up that will quench your soul. Here is in the promise of God to Isaiah. This is just in the, after the suffering servant passage in Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Come, God says to Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for which it is not bread and you labor for which it does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. This is God's compassion and love. He says, listen, come. Drink my water. Drink of me. And how does he, what does he connect this water to? Will you listen? Will you listen diligently to me? Will you incline your ear to me? Will you come to me and hear? That is coming to the water and drinking. Will you open up his word that he's given us and will you listen to him? And will you refresh your soul? Will you listen diligently? Will you go after and offer the truth to others and offer him to others the opportunity to hear? Will you enter into David's conversation not just with Jesus, which you ought to do, 
daily. But will you enter into dangerous conversations with other people, as Jesus does, to let them know the gift of the living waters, of eternal life, of the Holy Spirit, of grace? I mean, day in and day out, what do you thirst for? What do you crave? Do you thirst for the truth that he offers? Do you thirst for Jesus? Do you thirst for the salvation and the satisfaction that he brings? Do you you thirst for his love? Jesus' love quenches all desires and all thirst. Matthew 5, 7, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus is the righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for what is truly righteous, Jesus, you will be satisfied. John 19, 28, this is Jesus on the cross. Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. There's lots of reasons why he said that. But one of the reasons, right, what do we know that Jesus thirsts for? We know it because he identifies as one of us, and he knows what we all thirst for, relationship with the Father. Jesus is thirsty on the cross because you and I are thirsty every day. We're thirsty for the manifestations of God's justice and his righteousness, his, which his love and his grace satisfies. In, th- in that story of the silver chair, Aslan asked Jill, are you not thirsty? Aslan knew Jill was, thirst, was thirsty. Jesus knows that you are thirsty. Jesus knew that Samaritan woman was really thirsty. And Jill said, I'm dying of thirst. And what does the Aslan say to her? Then drink. Then drink. It's right here, right now. I mean, this is what Jesus is offering to us right now, right day, every day. Drink. I know you're thirsty. Drink. Stop going after that other gross, dirty water in your own cisterns. Our Father knows that we are thirsty. He knows we are literally dying of thirst in this drought-filled, parched world. And he invites us into a dangerous conversation. Conversation that actually doesn't put us in peril, but reveals the peril that we are in. And he says, drink. Be satisfied. Our Lord breaks every social barrier that we put up. He breaks every sin barrier that we put up. He breaks every social norm in this world, and he lives to have a conversation with us. And he says, come and drink. Be satisfied. As I I read over this and prayed over this and worked over this scripture, my heart just sank because I know that I am not always thirsty and eager to enter into those conversations with people. My heart is not always broken the way Jesus' heart is broken for people in this world. And so I want every day for my heart to break for people because they thirst. And I know they thirst. I want my heart to break every time I seek to get a drink somewhere else and satisfy my thirst. I want my heart to break so I know that people are just like me. 
the same dignity. His models for his disciples and for you and me is go where you don't want to go. Go where you don't want to go. Go where your heart says, eh, they're different. Go there. That's where our hearts need to grow in their compassion and their empathy and their grace. Jesus is calling us all into dangerous conversations with him. And I don't know if you've had a dangerous conversation with him, but he is eager to have it with you. He's eager to have it with you. I encourage you to have that today. If you don't know how, come talk to me. We'll talk about it. But he's not just asking you to have a dangerous conversation with him. He's saying, go have dangerous conversation with other people. Tell them about me. Don't look down at unbelievers. Don't look down at people you think are worse sinners than you. They're not. Don't look down that they're, they're somehow different or have a different a dignity. They don't. Identify with them. That's what our Lord has done. Will you be thirsty for people to know Jesus? Will you have that same draw and that same compassion and same grace that he has? There is no other stream. There is no other source. You and I will die of thirst if we do not come to Jesus. Our neighbors will die if they do not come to Jesus. Our family will die if they do not come to Jesus. There is no other stream. One practical way that we're going to example a model that we can do this to have dangerous conversations with people. uh, I mean, it's it's a conversation. I don't like having them. One way is that uh, on Lent, on Facebook Live, I'm going to do... Just a little cheating. One-way conversation with you, because uh, that's what I'm comfortable with. A one-way conversation with you. I'm going to model uh, maybe a one, how to do a one-on-one Bible study with someone. Just read the, not a study, just read the Bible with someone. Invite them into that. Maybe who someone who already knows Jesus, but it's comfortable with that. Maybe someone's just interested. Say, hey, let's just read the Bible together one-on-one. I know in this pandemic it's hard to do, and maybe you could do it over Zoom or a phone call, or maybe it's someone's in your bubble that you can do that with, or you can do it socially distanced. But I'm going to model that we're just going to go every uh, Lent weekday morning, about 15 minutes, I'm going to open up the book of Ephesians, and we're just going to walk through it and read it together, and we'll talk about it talk about it. And my goal is not for you necessarily to believe it or to adhere to it, but just to understand what it's saying. That's actually having a conversation, a one-on-one conversation. Bring them to the well. Bring them to the well. And this is the model. It's just one way. There's lots of ways to have this conversation, right, to, with people. But who's going to enter into those conversations with people? Who's going to enter into them? Who's going to humble themselves to offer the living water? Jesus. I know Jesus is entering those conversations, and he's going to enter those conversations with or without you, but he's inviting you to join him in those conversations. Will you join him? Will you join him? That's a question for me. It's a question for you. Will you join him? Will you be thirsty for what he's thirsty for? Finding his people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, 
Loving Lord, I I am so thankful that you are willing to enter into a dangerous conversation with me and with people of this world. I thank you that you are the you give the gift and you are uh, are the gift. You're the giver and the gift. Lord, help me to be satisfied in you and you alone. And stop wandering off and drinking other sources of water. Something that does not satisfy. Help us all to put our mind and hearts into entering into dangerous conversations with you day in and day out and dangerous conversations with others. So they may know that we love them and that they may know that you love them. And you know their peril. You know their hurt. You know their anxiety. And you're offering grace, yourself, and eternal life. Lord, help us to enter those conversations. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.